You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Aaron Lammer of the Longform Podcast, but I also have a new podcast, and that podcast is called Stoner, and in it, I interview creative, interesting people about their experiences with marijuana. This week on the show, I talked to Nick Denton. If you want to check it out, just search for Stoner in iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. It's a really fascinating conversation and some of the only media he has done uh, since the end of his trial uh, with Hulk Hogan. So again, Stoner, everywhere that podcasts are found, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from the Atavis Magazine and I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Hey, you guys. Aaron, you just drank your Diet Coke there like someone in a commercial drinks Diet Coke. Sometimes I will, uh, I'll do anything for that last drop of Diet Coke. <laughs> I will like let it like slowly like molasses sip to the tip and drop onto my tongue. <laughs> you did have that bottle of Diet Coke in your mouth for like seven or eight seconds trying to get that last drop. Just oh, now. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I interviewed uh, Alex Kotlowitz, uh, who is, uh, I am a, more than a fan like i'm a i don't know what's above fan super fan super fan it's not a word i would use but that's probably what it is uh of alex kotlowitz a who, stan a stan yes in the in the modern parlance of our times um alex kotlowitz i f- knew about him first as many people did from reading a book called there are no children here which is uh routinely on lists of like best books of the 20th century and things like that that you should read uh, where he spent two years in a housing project in Chicago with two kids and followed them. Uh, There's also a book that Max you put me onto called The Other Side of the River which is incredible Um, but he's also worked across other mediums. He had a documentary called The Interrupters that he did. He's done This American Life episodes that have won Peabody Awards. Uh, His style of reporting is really uh, incredible depth and portraits of people, uh, often kind of like marginalized people or outsiders, and uh, he's really amazing. I'm, I'm gonna. I have a confession here, which is you guys were um, uh, talking about this episode and hushed the hushed tones you reserve uh, for very special episodes. I did not know who Alex Kotlowitz was, so I googled him and I realized that he had written one of my favorite stories, which is the trench coat robbers, which is a New Yorker New Yorker story New Yorker story, New Yorker yeah. story about uh, the most prolific bank robbers ever. Yeah, which so, is uh, just to say, like he can he can do the fun stuff too. Like that's an all time. I, I haven't read. I have not read. There are no children here. 
Seems like a good party policy, too. Damn, these jokes are just bombing. <laughs> just bombing. Uh, <laughs> so I spoke to Alex uh, in his kitchen in Chicago. It was a real uh, Alex Kotlowitz kitchen experience. Uh, there were dogs and cats running around. There were kids coming in and out. Uh, and that uh, that made it actually really fun to do, to kind of like... Uh, get to be there amidst uh, his life for a couple hours. I am so excited for this one. Alex Kotlowitz is like a, a Hall of Famer. This is, it's great. I'm so glad he's on the show. If you're trying to get that email newsletter out the door as literally I am right now because I'm about to post a new version of a different podcast I'm doing. Stoner. 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 Check that Subscribe out. Now. Subscribe now. Stoner. Stoner in the iTunes store. But sometimes you're up against the clock and you're trying to get an email newsletter out and there's children and chickens and dogs running around your your apartment you need a simple email provider that has all the features you need and none of the weird bells and whistles. That's MailChimp. They make it easy for your business to stay in constant contact with the people who care most about it. Thank you, MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Alex Kotlowitz. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for having me in your home. We are in your yeah. lovely kitchen. Yeah, with and... my wet dog at your feet. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful golden retriever right here, just uh, resting at my feet. Um, inspirational. Um, speaking of inspirational, um, it feels like a kind of long way around for me to get to interview you because I think that There Are No Children Here was the first like real nonfiction narrative book that I ever read. And I just, I really remember thinking like, I can't believe that someone did this. Like I just didn't know anything about the way reporting worked or anything that I can't believe someone just went and basically inhabited this place. And I know that uh, for years you've had probably people tell you similar uh, things. Did you have books like that? Or was there a book or a something that brought you into this that you remember? Yeah. No, the book that for me was your, There Are No Children Here, was my Tony Lucas's Common Ground. Oh. Which is, you know, this amazing, astonishing book about the busing wars in, in Boston. Um, and there's an opening scene where one of the protagonists is in his office, and he, I can still remember the light coming through the windows. Um, but it was that book I just thought, my God, you know, read like fiction. You know, yeah, I thought, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is what I wanted to do. And what point, do you remember what point you were in your career or before your career when, when you read that book? So I, you know, I got started, um, I kind of stumbled into journalism. I, my first job was at a, a small alternative newsweekly in, in Michigan. Uh -huh. um, and I didn't last very long. I didn't get, it's the only place I didn't get along with the editor. So I got <laughs> fired or walked away, depending who you ask. Uh, but it was during that time that one, I realized this is, man, if somebody's going to pay me, this is what I want to do. I just love the, you know, on the one hand, I left my own devices. I think I just stay holed up in my house. You uh -huh. know? So it thrust me out into the world and kind of forced me to knock on doors, you know. And uh, and then, of course, I had this time where I could just hole up in my house and kind of craft story. But it was during that time, I think, at that paper that I read Common Ground. And I thought, this is what I want to do. Uh-huh. You said that left your own devices, you would, you would never leave the house. Are you sort of like... Uh, a very naturally introverted person? Yeah, I think I'm just kind of a pr private person. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I love being around people, but I just, you know, it's, I find for me, I've been at this now for, you know, almost 40 years, and it's still the hardest thing for me is that kind of proverbial first knock on the door to, 
get people like I'm working on a book now and I'm trying to chase down some people and those phone calls are really hard for me to make and I just think I'm it's just you know I'm just afraid people are just going to say no you know they're going <laughs> to turn me down it's kind of like asking a girl out on a date you know it's uh yeah, so. I mean, I've interviewed enough writers now to know that this is a phenomenon that I definitely experienced personally and that many writers experience personally. But I feel like you saying it establishes it that it absolutely goes all the way to the top because reading your work, I mean, it's all built around the amount of time you spend right. with people patiently taking in what's right. happening in their world. And right. So one, I will say that once I'm in the door and mm -hmm. once people let me into their lives and it's this incredible privilege and honor to be let in, I'm, I'm not, I'm in and I'm in all the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's that first knock on the door that for me is so hard. You've worked across so many mediums now. It's sort of hard to encapsulate uh, everything, but I feel like even if uh, I look at like the interrupters or, or the radio work that it, feels to me like there is an Alex Kotlowitz type of story and like I can sense what it is even if I can't totally describe it and I wonder if you think of it that way that like there is some type of story that is when you see it you know like that's mine that's the right. kind of thing for me yeah I mean I gotta say part of me gets my I, I get a little defensive because I worry about getting typecast oh, you know I, yeah the, you know, I guess you know, it could cut both ways yeah that, that, but that I, idea. you know I guess I, I I think for me when I think about my work it's in some ways there are kind of two simple sort of principles for me one is that I'm just sort of trying to sort of understand how people live their lives and mm -hmm. more often than not it's people who are sort of in extraordinary circumstances um and then the other part of it is, is sort of my driving force and i suspect for a lot of people like yourself is that you know this notion that life ought to be fair and so you go out in the world and you see things that are just seem grossly unfair and you just feel compelled to write about it in some ways um but i mean for me i just i love a good story and mm -hmm. so i'm looking for stories and i tell stories of people who's who for whatever reason have never told their stories publicly before and there's a kind of exhilaration about that does that sound like sort of how you see it when i read when, your when, work yeah, and see yeah, your work yeah 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 i think what i what i felt like looking over and, and rereading and, and listening to a lot um what bounded together was i mean it's obviously like very very intimate like the mm -hmm. portraits are very very up close right. And then uh, the selection of the types of people right. can be pretty wide, mm -hmm. but they definitely f seem to fall into categories of, you know, the, where you, you could sort of generically say like everyday people or something like that. Right. But like there might be people in, in extraordinary circumstances, but they're not well-known. They're not famous. Right. They're not. Right. Studs Terkel used to call them the et cetera's of the world. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. That's a, a nice way to think about it. Um, but yeah, there is this, um, I mean, I really work hard at trying to achieve that sense of intimacy and uh, it's tough. <laughs> well, I want to get to exactly how you do that, but I, I also wanted to talk about just, so you, you at some point made the jump to the Wall Street Journal and you're working right. in the Wall Street Journal and I've always been curious, sort of, like, how did you go from working in the Wall Street Journal to writing a book like There Are No Children Here? Right. Like, were you chafing under the requirements of being a newspaper mm -hmm. writer yeah. and looking for that? Or did you sort of fall into that story? Right. I, you know, at the Journal, which was kind of the last place I expected to land. In fact, I, I got to tell you, I, mean, I applied to about a dozen daily newspapers. I just thought I felt like I needed that experience of being working with seasoned reporters and editors. I couldn't get a single newspaper to 
to hire me because mm-hmm. I didn't have any daily newspaper experience. It was this catch-22, and the journal was the last place I applied to, and for whatever reason, they were willing to take a gamble. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and I thought I'd be there for a few years and ended up there for 10. Uh, so I, I, I think I had as good a job as you could get in daily journalism. You know, I was I could disappear for three weeks, a couple of months at a time to work on stories for them. It was like working for a magazine. Um, so I loved it. I There was a point at, where I did a story about Lafayette, the older of the two boys, and there were no children here. It was just about a summer in his life and about the violence I did for the journal. And it got more attention than anything else I've ever written. Huh. Uh, so then I got all this interest from people about writing a book, and I thought, like I had said, everything I wanted to say. Um, huh. And I had this agent, uh, David Black, who's still my agent today, who convinced me that there was more to write. Um, and that also convinced me, and it's the reason, I think, to write a book is that it was a story that would resonate 10 years from now. For me, it's always the test of whether you should write a book. Is this something that people are going to want to read 10, 15 years from now? And so that's what led me to take a leave, actually, from the journal to write my first book. And did it come naturally to you that the sort of, I mean, obviously you'd done the newspaper story, but spending the time that you ended up spending with those kids and getting into their lives, did that happen naturally? Well, it happened. The kind of reporting that was involved in that book is something that I had never experienced before. I mean, I for a year and a half, I mean, virtually every day, this is before cell phones, the family didn't have a telephone. I would drive down to the housing projects. I would spend time with Lafayette and Farrow, usually when they got out of school or on the evenings, and then I'd be spending time with other people in that community. Um, and then every, I'd go home at night and I'd start. I'd type up my notes. I mean, it was just a year and a half where I was just, I don't remember seeing anybody doing anything other than I played basketball. I think that was the only thing I did besides working on the book. Uh-huh. I didn't have a family then. I didn't have kids. Uh, it was an intense, a really intense experience. I, an experience I don't think I could replicate. What would not be replicable about it? Is it what what's changed in your life or well, the uh, inability to get that kind of access? No, I think what's changed in my life. Yeah. I don't think I could, you know, I've got kids, I've got family, I've got other stuff going on. And I don't know that I'd want to do it. I mean, it was it was also taxing um, physically, emotionally. Uh, I mean, I got really in the in the course of working on that book, I got very depressed. Um, I think it was just hard. I mean, I was in this community that was just so distressed and I used to worry about the kids all the time I, my phone would ring late at night I'd worry something had happened to them uh, and I tried to use all that to try to understand what it must be like to be living there because of course I could just go down there every day and then leave late at night or early in the morning um, but it, it took its toll <laughs> This is your other host, Aaron, with a quick word from our sponsor, MeUndies. Which is the first thing you put on and the last thing you take off? Your underwear. So make your most important piece of clothing the best it can be with MeUndies. So what is MeUndies? Seriously soft, feel-good undies delivered right to your door. They're made of sustainably sourced micro-modal fabric that is three times softer than cotton And the best part, in my opinion, is that you can save time and money each month by opting for a monthly subscription. Take the guesswork out of your underwear game. But if you're not ready for that subscription, that's okay. You can still save because MeUndies is offering you 20% off your first pair when you use our special URL, 
MeUndies.com slash longform. So go ahead, reboot your underwear drawer. You deserve it. Again, MeUndies.com slash longform for 20% off your first pair. Thank you, MeUndies. There was this incredible moment in the This American Life series that you did on Harbor High, which I don't think I caught the first time when I originally heard it. I only caught it when I was re-listening to it, where the counselor in the high school is talking about having read There Are No Children Here for a class or something that she's taking. And it's incredibly poignant because on the one hand, that part of the story is about she's saying... And look, nothing has changed. These same problems exist. But then there's a little, uh, it's almost off mic of you sort of telling her about how a couple of the people are doing. Uh, But it just made me realize and wonder, like, to what extent are those people still like in your life? Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the perks about this work is that a lot of the people, not everybody, because not everybody likes what you write, but a lot of the people, at least I end up writing about it, become a part of my life and my family's life. I mean, I feel so much richer for it. I mean, I'm still, you know, very much in touch with Lafayette and Farrow. Um, In fact, uh, about five years ago, there's a character in there on the children here, Jimmy Lee, who was the head of the Vice Lords. He was the head of the, he controlled the part of the projects where the family lived. And by the time I wanted to interview him, he got arrested and was off in prison. Mm. And he probably uh, smartly declined an interview. So I had to sort of create this portrait by talking to gang members, talking to the police, talking to people in the projects. And uh, about five years ago, when I was working on the interrupters, in fact, I ran into this guy. He's couple years older than me came up to me shook my hand I said you know I'm sorry but I can't recognize you and it was Jimmy Lee it was uh and he said to me you know I have just one request and I said you know whatever it is it's yours and he said I just want a signed copy of the book (laughs) so and I still and I still and he's kind of reformed he's kind of turned his life around I I see him periodically in fact we were at lunch about six months ago and some guy came up to us and Jimmy was saying you know this is a guy who wrote the book and he goes oh were you one of the boys and Jimmy goes no I was the villain (laughs) <laughs> he kind of knew his place in the in the story, but maybe so, relished it a, a yeah. little bit. And so I'm still, you know, I'm still in touch with the social workers at, uh, from uh, Harper High, and two of the subjects and the interrupters are very close. So yeah, it's but it's, it's one of the things I, I love about my work. It's opened up my universe. Yeah, and and so when you're getting into one of these stories. I mean, I feel that a lot of reporters have the idea that they don't want that to happen. That's not where they want to end up with people. You know, I'm not here to make friends or something. And maybe that's for a slightly different type of reporting. But I'm wondering if that changes your ability to, uh, in how you interact with them. Yeah, I, I don't know that it does. I, I don't I don't set out and think to myself, I'm here to be this person's friend or yeah. that this is a relationship that I'm really looking forward to sort of, you know, extending beyond the project that I'm, I'm working on. Um, it just sort of feels inevitable. You get really, I have a friend who talks about this work as a kind of accelerated intimacy. You know, you get really intimate with people really quickly. Uh, I mean, you're asking questions you got no business asking. You're intruding on their lives in ways that you've got no business to intrude. And and so you become very close very quickly. And so inevitably, I mean, relationships, they, they, I've had relationships that end up really complicated, too, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. have been fraught with 
tension or ambiguity, but you write for the most part, you write about people because on some level you admire who they are or what they're doing. And so it's inevitable that I think that if you spend enough time with people that you build relationships with them. So, yeah. 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 What's your persona as a reporter when you come, like well, you, you make that knock on the door, that's a tough thing to do. And then you get in and, you know, I read some accounts of sort of like the Harper High, for instance, situation where you're basically just like sitting in this person's office all day. Right. And are you trying to sort of shrink down small and not be a presence and be invisible? Or are you trying to interact right. and sort of bring things out right. of people? Yeah. I mean, I always tell my students that I teach up at Northwestern, you know, that we're not landscape artists. You know, we're not, <laughs> we're, in other words, we're not just sitting back and just sort of observing that you've got to sort of engage. So it's it's a kind of a myth if you think that somehow you can kind of disappear, you yeah. know, especially if I'm there with a tape recorder and headphones <laughs> and a mic, you know, it's your presence is pretty apparent. Um, no, I, you know, for me, it's just a, um, I'm there, I'm, I'm pretty relentless about, questions about making sure that I've got everything right, um, that I'm being absolutely fair, that I'm not intruding too much, um, that I know enough when I should walk away. But also, I, you know, I'm with people, I'll make sure that I'm not always on so that we're talking about things that maybe have nothing to do with the subject at hand, maybe talking about a movie or basketball. You know, you're just looking for connections with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of it is I just try to be as straight as I can with people about what I'm doing. You know, stories change, and I recognize that. But try to be just be as open as you can about what your intent is and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the the times when you've when you've written about kids or or teenagers, you know, I, again, it, I was listening to the Harper High thing, and it was interesting. There was a part of it where one of the kids, I think it was Devante, right. but I'm not sure where you were talking to him and if you had not told me this is a reporter talking to a subject this is an interview this is a tape of a counseling session right. itself right yeah. i would have believed you because right. you're telling you know he's telling you why he feels worthless and you're saying yeah. like yeah in fact i remember it's a moment that i still when i think about it, still makes me feel a little uncomfortable to be perfectly honest and it's that moment when he actually talks about whether he's worth living right yeah it's, right it's almost Amy's incredibly, I mean, it's an incredibly revealing moment. And I'm thinking, part of what I'm thinking is, you really shouldn't be telling me this. You should be telling Anita or Crystal this, the two social workers. And they weren't in the room at the time. I mean, Devante was just talking to me. And there are sometimes moments when, you know, you get close to people. But it's funny. So when I was working in the Harper High, I'd be down there with my headphones and my tape recorder and my, you know, my mic. And it had this effect with Devante and Thomas, the two boys that are kind of profiled with the, these two social workers, of, of getting them to open up. They would, I'd have it and they would tell Anita and Crystal things that they never told them otherwise. And it kind of gave them license in some ways. Mm-hmm. And for me, the thing that's most important on my end is that I just, that despite the fact that I sometimes grow close to people, that they never forget why I'm there. Mm-hmm. So with a microphone, it's easy. So I'm there with Devante and he knows I'm there recording. Um, but if I'm there just for print, I mean, I always have my notebook out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always, because I just don't want people to feel that somehow I betrayed their their confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that's important is with Devante, with that moment, I did go back and talk to him about whether he felt comfortable with me using that moment. Um, Cause it just felt so, 
well, it felt raw and it felt like he was kind of asking for help. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly comes across yeah. that way when you listen to it. Do you get bored doing this reporting? I, I asked that because the, the, I was reading, uh, the other side of the river, which was like in m many places talks about how many times over how many years, like you went back to this place and like, I went back to that house three times and the second time it wasn't boarded up and the third time it was boarded up. And it just made me wonder, are there your projects that go on that long that you get bored with and you're just sort of like, I don't want to do that anymore. Or like, what role does boredom play in the type of reporting that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, well, there's something really kind of exciting and exhilarating about this work, and you know this as well as I do, that it also is incredibly tedious. Yeah. And so for all the terrific material you get, there's 10 hours spent just hanging out and thinking Am I wasting my time? Every time I start a story, I feel like, okay, I'm going to be really efficient about the reporting. <laughs> and uh, reporting is just, it's so messy. It's filled with all this. It, partly it's boredom. But then there are these moments that just you kind of sort of sit up and think, wow, I can't believe I'm privy to this moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, The Interrupters is a perfect example. We shot 300 hours of film wow. you know, for a two-hour documentary. So when you're writing a book, do you do you write as you're going along or do you gather all up to a point like going away right. for a year and a half and then come back and say, OK, now now I have it now. I'm, now I start. Yeah. No, I try to do the bulk of reporting before I write. I have friends who write as they go along. Yeah. I can't do that. I need to feel like I know it all so that. And in fact, when I sit down the first for that first draft, I sit down without notes, with the assumption being that the things that have stayed with me are the things that are going to stay with the reader. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, there are moments that I've forgotten about, and, and then you've got to go back through your notes to fill in all the details and make sure everything's accurate. Some of the topics you've written about, they, they seem like if uh, if you look at something like the other side of the river and the echoes that you can see in... Ferguson or other places, you know, a decade mm -hmm. more later. Um, and the same with, there was this, this American life story that was like a full episode story called Cicero mm -hmm. right. about a town and immigration. And it was a like predominantly white town. Then it became a predominantly Latino town. And what does that mean for people and how do they respond? Mm -hmm. And that feels like mm -hmm. it could be happening right now. I mean, there are no children here is a perfect example. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a story that sadly, hasn't changed much. I mean, you could go out and find uh, Lafayette and Farrell living in, I mean, the projects have been torn down, but living in similar communities. And I think a lot of the experiences that those boys had 25 years ago would be experiences that you'd write about now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess there's sober, something sobering about it. But I've got to say, too, you know, I don't tell stories because I somehow think I'm going to change the world, that it's going to, you know, go out and change legislation and get people or politicians to act differently. You know, you tell stories, I think, in the end, to just sort of get people to think about themselves and others a little differently. You uh -huh. know, that's sort of as much as you can do. You know, this, I guess, ultimately, to try to find empathy. And I don't know, maybe it doesn't feel very, sound very ambitious, but I think you got to be careful if what you're if you're writing stories because you think somehow you're going to change things and that you know you're going to see this these immediate results. Um, you're only setting yourself up for disappointment. Mm -hmm. You know, writers of color always get asked about being writers of color, like that's like a trope in interviews. Um, 
but you're you're like a white guy who has gone into communities of color and reported on them and i'm wondering what like what that interaction uh has been for you and also like you're not from that community is that a better way to be as an outsider to like come in portray it from the outside or more difficult because you don't understand well, look, let me, I mean, let me just say up front that the truth of the matter is given what we do, we're always outsiders, right? If it's not by race or class, it's by gender, religion, politics. I mean, it's just the nature of being a nonfiction writer. You're yeah. going into communities that on some level feel unfamiliar. I mean, if you're writing about stuff you already know about, I mean, where's the joy in that? And where's the sense of discovery? Why bother? And certainly, you know, you go into communities like the west side of Chicago, and I stand out by race, by class, you know, now by age, if I'm with young people. And I, I think the, you know, I, do I think about it a lot? I do. But, um, you know, I, I grew up in, in a very integrated community. Uh, I grew up on the west side of New York in the 1960s, very different west side than it is today. Right. And... Uh, I just assumed, you know, like any kid, that this is sort of how everybody lived their lives. You know, I played basketball every weekend, and it was, you know, black, Hispanic. There was a large Asian population on Amsterdam Avenue. And um, and you go out in the world, and you come to realize, my God, what an extraordinary and unusual experience I had growing <laughs> up. Uh, but it's, you know, you try, you go out in the world, you try as best you can to sort of understand what it must be like to be somebody else whose life is very different from your own. And race obviously plays a role in it and you get close you never get all the way there uh and i think there are advantages to being an outsider which is that you you know see things that others have stopped seeing you get angry at other things that people have stopped getting angry about that they've gotten resigned about um and then there are disadvantages which is you know you've got to be really attuned to sort of knowing what you don't know um, and not be afraid to ask. Um, I mean, I've been laughed at plenty by my <laughs> questions. Uh, were you, uh, growing up in New York, were you a kind of literary kid? I grew up in a kind of literary family. So my, my dad was a, a writer. He was actually, um, he was managing editor at Harper's during its heyday oh. um, under Willie Morris. And then, um, and then he went and worked in public TV. But he wrote novels on the side. Uh, in fact, he, we'd have to clear out of our apartment on the weekends, my brother and I, to give him space to, to write. <laughs> really? uh, and my mom was a social worker, so I kind of got the best of both in some ways. But yeah, I grew up in, a, I mean, books have been a constant in my life. I grew up in a, an apartment that was just lined with books. I, uh-huh. just, it's, you know, uh, I mean, that and basketball have been the two things that I, I can't imagine ever letting go of. I suspect the basketball will go at some point. <laughs> So when you when you got into a writing career, did you did it feel sort of comfortable and familiar to you? Like not like the family business exactly, but sort of like yeah, I guess. But this, I you know um, I actually thought I was going to be a biologist. That's that uh, was where my you know, and then I took organic chemistry, and I realized that I was not cut out for the sciences. <laughs> um, so it wasn't like I had this burning desire to be a writer, or but I, there's no question that having grown up in that world that. I didn't feel intimidated by it. You know, it sort of, I'm sure gave me a license to be ambitious, I guess. I want to talk a little bit more about, about a couple of the books, particularly the other side of the river, because I feel like there's a, there's a passage in there towards the beginning that really sort of describes how difficult facts are to pin down in particularly in a charged, in a racially charged environment, which those towns were 
And ultimately, I mean, that book, it does sort of end up like uncertain. Right. Um, and in this sort of day and age, like what do you feel about what a reporter, even spending the amount of time that you spend on something like that, what can you ultimately divine? Right. Yeah, that was a tough book for any number of reasons, but one of which is that you sort of alluded to, which is that it's a story, a very compelling story, because about the death of this mysterious death of this 16-year-old African-American kid whose body's found in this river between these two towns. And I'm not giving anything away, but you don't find out what happened to him. You don't know. And there are all these possibilities. Um, and Ranging from his committing suicide to murder to an accident. Right, exactly, right. And so as a storyteller, I thought, boy, am I going to just kind of, when the reader's going to get to the end of this book, are they just going to beat me over the head for completely disappointing them? Um, and um, and so I tried, I mean, two things. One is I, I, I say early on that this is not a story where there's going to be a neat resolution. Yeah. And then I went back and read and reread and reread Tim O'Brien's Lake in the Woods. You've ever read that book? It's a, that it's book. a novel that he wrote about a um, Vietnam veteran who was governor of Minnesota it's, again, fiction, and he loses his race, and he goes up to the North Woods with his wife, and she disappears. And there are three different endings to the book, literally three different endings. And so as a reader, I'm sure everybody, because I, I felt certain, like I knew what had happened to her. Uh-huh. And so I felt like if I could get close to pulling off what he had done in that book, that it felt, the book felt very satisfying, despite the fact that there was all this ambiguity at the end. But that was really hard. Um, the other part of it is, is that, you know, writing about race is really, really tough. Um, and one of the things that's really tough about it is the the story of race in this country is in some ways a story of absence, right? It's the absence of any connections. And we tend to write about race at this moment of crisis when these two worlds collide, whether it's in Ferguson or here in Chicago. Um, and so that was a real challenge. I mean, I had this moment in time, but there was, was the book is kind of layered with a number of stories from these two towns, mm-hmm. all sort of reflecting on race. Um, and what was interesting to me is that in the white community, you know, I tell them what I was working on and they'd say to me, why are you working on, on such a depressing book like that? And, you know, that race isn't really an issue around here. And I mean, I think that's so much of white America, right? That it's race doesn't don't want to talk really, about it. Well, don't want to talk about it. race doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, right. they, Cause it, and it doesn't to them, you know, they, and then I'd go into the black community and they were very suspicious. Who was I to come tell their story? And, but once it was clear, they were very, open and eager even to share their story and in fact one of the stories in the book is about a, I would what was interesting to me is some of the old timers they were more upset than the youth about this about Eric McGinnis's death mm-hmm. and they would say to me well you know it's just like the lynching that mm-hmm. happened here and I'm thinking what lynching I go do this research I couldn't find anything and then sure enough I come across this incident where this guy had been arrested for allegedly raping a white woman and uh, and he, uh, a crowd forms outside the jail. This is back in the 1920s in Michigan. And we're there to lynch him. I mean, and would have had it not been for the sheriff who courageously stood guard at the jailhouse door with his shotgun. But there was this moment that, you know, for all the people in Benton Harbor in this black town, they remembered so clearly it had been passed on from generation to generation. And in the white town, it was just, it had disappeared. Just forgotten. Yeah. What kept you going back for so long? Was it, were you driven by thinking, 
I might be able to solve the mystery of what happened to this kid or were you driven by something else? Well, there was that. There was, I, I did get obsessed with trying to sort of, at some point, I just sort of thought I, I need to get to the bottom of what happened to him. So there was this obsession. But it's also my curse, which is I just don't know when to stop. I mean, I you could say that about just everything I work on is I just sort of find myself going back and going back and going back. And I, I just, when is enough enough? What actually drives, you do get to writing, I know, because I've read the published. I do, so the two things that drive me are when my wife says to me, so how's that book coming? Is there a deadline? And then, of course, it's the letter or phone call or email from my editor, which says, you know, which I just got on a book I'm working on now, which says, how's the writing going? Do, do you think this summer sounds like a good deadline? <laughs> And that kind of kicks kicks you, over something I need in your brain. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I dread deadlines. I don't like them. I was a terrible, you know, I did some daily reporting of the journal. I was just awful at it. But there is something to be said about them. Yeah. And then when it comes to, I mean, the sort of flip side of what we talked about earlier, which is writing oftentimes about, you know, quote unquote, ordinary people or, or the et cetera, is, is sort of how you select those people and how you decide which ones are characters and which ones are not and like in your chicago book i was sort of wondering like how you even found these people like how do you sort of canvas all of chicago and say okay now what i want to do is i want to find portraits of like real chicagoans who really reflect some part of the community what does that process right. look like right so i wish there was uh, some kind of efficient way to sort of think okay here's how i'm going to find the story of this character i mean it's using the chicago book you know it's a collection of stories of outsiders in the city and at one point when I was working on that book, I thought, okay, well, if I'm doing this, I need to get, make sure I get an alderman. I need to make sure I get an immigrant. You know, I felt like I needed to sort of get this array of characters that were representative of Chicago. And once I let go of that and just thought, okay, who are the people I want to hang out with? Uh -huh. I was kind of home free, you know. Uh -huh. And so there were some individuals. There's a guy in there, Ed Sidlowski, who is the... Uh, this uh, head of the steelworkers union here ran for the steelworkers presidency. Um, just a real character. I just always wanted to meet him. So this was my excuse to go. And then there were other people I just heard about. There's an artist, uh, Bob Guinan, um, who a friend had told me about his work. And I looked at his artwork and I was just blown away by it. There's a guy who he painted the kind of down and out of Chicago. He'd go to these bars and uh, street corners and You'd have prostitutes pose for him, and they're beautiful paintings. I mean, really, really intimate. And so he was completely ignored in Chicago and beloved in France. And uh, he just his paint, his artwork would sell for sixty thousand wow. dollars. And yet, all his work was of Chicago, and hmm. he he never had a show here. And so I just thought, what a great story. And do you feel like you have an eye out for characters all the time? Like, are you someone who's on the lookout for when you meet people? Like, yeah, I'm I'm looking for stories more yeah. than I am for characters. I think I'm yeah. always on the lookout for stories. Um, you know, sometimes you have to be a little careful because you know you're around people and people are telling you stuff, and you realize, well, maybe this you know sounds like a really terrific story, but you need to just sort of make sure that you're not sort of crossing boundaries and kind of taking things that you might eavesdrop or you know hear about on the side. But yeah, I'm always got an ear to the ground for. And I would sort of, I mean, perhaps uh, from our earlier discussion about being typecast, that there might be a certain type of story that people also bring to you and want you to do. Does that happen? Yeah, it does. Um, I do have people come to me with stories. I find for the most part that they often don't interest me. Mm. I think for me, one of the things as I get older that 
I'm really interested in stories in which there's some ambiguity, in which there's not things aren't black and white, and I'm uh, am, am drawn to people who are that way as as well. It's sort of more challenging as a storyteller, but I also feel like it's more true to to life, mm-hmm. more true to who we are. Mm-hmm. Where did the uh, where did the trench coat robbers story originate? <laughs> I have so, to ask you about that yeah, story. I, I know exactly how it originated, which is that it was during the Monica Lewinsky scandal and Robert Siegel, on All Things Considered, is spending maybe three minutes reading these stories that have happened that nobody's paid any attention to. And one of them was the conviction of Ray Bowman, one of the bank robbers. Uh-huh. And he just mentions, you know, these guys had been at it longer than anybody else in U.S. history. And, you know, they was, and didn't get any coverage. And I thought, wow, what a great story. And I began to look and nobody had written about them. Uh, you know, these, these two guys from Kansas City who had been robbing banks for 15 years. They were convinced they had this kind of cockamamie theory that uh, that they could get more money in blue-collar towns because the, the people dealt in cash. Um, <laughs> but they would do two jobs a year, and their last job was in Tacoma, Washington, where they came away with, uh, I think, I believe it was th- a little over $3 million. They happened to hit the bank the night they got the night after they got the deposits from a local casino. And so the story is about, the guy, they're in their 50s at this point, and it's about, I'm not sure whether they were planning to do another robbery or not, but they were also settling down. One of them was married, had two daughters, another had a new girlfriend. And it's about how when they try to settle down that everything begins to unravel. Yeah. And they they, they live separately. They don't have, interact outside of their No, their they, grew, and, they grew up together, but yeah. they knew enough. You know, they were very savvy. One of them, they didn't, they, they didn't socialize. One of them, the guy who was married and had two daughters, you know, he had, his front was that he ran a a lawnmower business, uh, and you know, and they were very different. I met one of them, and one of them wouldn't meet with me, but because by the time I was working on the story, they were both in prison. Um, one was a very dapper dresser; the other looked like he had just gotten off a shift in a auto factory. Uh-huh. So, but uh, I did meet the the one who kind of looked like he'd just gotten off a shift at an auto factory. He, when he was uh, casing a bank in Duluth, he brought his new girlfriend uh, mm-hmm. with him and she fell in love with Lake Superior and they ended up building a cabin up along the lake there where they settled. Um, and I met her. She was just a real brassy, tough woman. Um, I liked her a lot, um, but she was part of their undoing because yeah, she just was privy to so much by the end of it. Yeah, and there was that... Uh contractor thing that got right she gets in right they build a they build this cabin and the contractor you know they're paying in cash and they're smart enough to pay in a little the increments of a little under ten thousand dollars because you don't have to report that to the irs and um he comes they've got a punch list you know all the things that still need to be done and they get into an argument over it and she threatens stupidly she threatens to call a lawyer on him and he one ups her and goes the irs and that's uh, and so there's this IRS guy up in Duluth who really doesn't have much to do. He stumbles into this, and the more he gets into it, he begins to realize there's something going on here. Yeah, but when you when you heard the like squib of it on the radio, there was no way to know that there was that much. No, in I, it. I had no idea. I didn't know. I, yeah, I didn't know anything about. It. I just started making phone calls, and uh, so the first thing I did there had been a court case. So I I ordered the transcripts. Uh, you know, and there's a kind of gamble. I did that. I, I think I did it at my own expense initially. I mean, I did it for the piece for the New Yorker event, yeah. you know, but 
But that's, I think part of this work is, you know, as well as anybody, there's a kind of risk involved, not a physical risk, but you go out and, you know, you could get into a story and stumble along and three weeks or a month into it, realize that there's nothing there, or it's a very different story than you anticipated, um, or it's going to be a hell of a lot more expensive than you thought yeah, it would be. Yeah. yeah. Have you had bigger projects that you've gotten far enough along and then had to had to abandon? Yeah, I had one story that um, I got reasonably, this is back when I was at the Wall Street Journal, when I, I got about two months into it and had to walk away from it. Um, partly, it still probably was a good story. It's not worth going into the details of it, but I felt like I had, it was about a kid and I, and um, who had gotten into some trouble. And so I was really there at the sort of invitation of his mom. I mean, I had to really convince or let me in and part of the story was how this kid had sort of all these institutions along the way had ignored all these moments when they could have intervened in this kid's life and I came to realize the more I got into it that the mother was equally responsible and I just felt like she had let me in in this way in this really uh, open and intimate way and I just didn't feel like it it was fair to her to, to do that it's not that there wasn't a good story there Mm-hmm. I just felt like that just didn't feel right. I think one of the things about this work, there's a, a large sense of responsibility in, in sharing people's stories in this very public way. And people who often are already in very vulnerable positions and you're exposing them in ways that they can't really imagine and you sometimes can't imagine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, and then what about... The idea of sort of helping them along the way, and when you when you right. get close to them and they're they're struggling, right. how do you approach that? Listen, when I was working at the Wall Street Journal, we used to take executives out or people to paper reporters would take executives out for these five hundred dollar lunches, <laughs> right? And so I just feel like okay, I can. There's nothing wrong with taking people out for meals, maybe even go to a movie with them if that's time you can spend with them. Um, that all seems to me completely reasonable. I think the tougher question is you know, the exchange of, of money. And mm-hmm. so I often get asked by people, am I going to get paid? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a really fair question because what people are asking is, what's in this for me, right? And I feel like you got that's something you got to deal with. So people have different reasons for telling the stories. Maybe they want to right or wrong, or maybe they want to, um, they know that if they could tell, if you can tell their story, you'll sort of expose sort of the conditions of their community or uh, or sometimes it's just that there's a kind of affirmation, you know, you nobody's ever asked you about their story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a for many years, I just had a very clear delineation that, you know, I could never pay anybody for their story. I actually now feel it's more complicated than that, especially if you're involved in a commercial enterprise like a book or a film you know i'm writing for the new yorker the new york times magazine they have their rules which are completely understandable and i would never exchange money it just and if i did i would never write for them again and mm-hmm. it's, um but i don't know right you write a book or a film that potentially could make money what do you owe your subjects mm-hmm. um uh, john krakauer um who i don't know but in an interview talked about when he was writing under the banner of heaven that he paid, uh, I believe it was 20000 maybe it was $10,000 for a woman's journal. And he was very upfront about the fact that he just felt that this was compensation for spending time with him. Hmm. Um, I think it's a, it's a tough question. I had a book project I really wanted to do, and the subject, he didn't want to get paid. He was a, an immigrant and faced possible deportation and wanted to set up a college fund for his daughter. Completely reasonable. Um, I had to back away from it in the end because... It, 
the, the Department of Homeland Security was after him. And I felt the question I had to ask myself, if I was going to pay him, I had to be completely open about it. And if I went to DHS and asked them about his situation and then told them that I, I paid him, that they probably rightfully would not want to talk with me. Mm. But under other circumstances, I might have agreed to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like I read somewhere that for there are no children here. You later I did, did like a royalty split right. Or so with, with them. right. So once the book was done, my publisher came to me and said, "Where are the releases?" And I said, "Releases? What releases? I never get releases from people. I can't go back now and ask people to sign a release after spending two years with them." And they said, "Well, we need releases." So I felt like if I was going to do that, there had to be some exchange for that. And I was going to do this anyway. And so I just sort of didn't made it more formal. And so once the book was done, I set up, I shared the royalties with Lafayette and Farrow. And we uh-huh. still get a little, you know, the book still sells. We don't get a lot of money, but there's still money that comes in and I still give roughly half of it to the two of them. And did you ever, do you ever, if you're in, I mean, you mentioned running into the guy who was in prison, like in that community, of people who were written about in the book, do you get people saying, hey, you're the guy that, like, you owe us something? uh, No, I've never, I haven't heard that from anybody. hmm. Nobody else uh, has said that. I know that you're, you're, well, I could be wrong about this. Like, it seems like your approach hasn't necessarily changed over the years. I mean, obviously your approach has evolved over the years, but have you seen changes in the way that people respond to you as a reporter? I think that, to be honest, I think the big difference is, is, is the money. Is people, I get that question more now than I did huh. 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting when I was, that book I mentioned where I, you know, I had to wrestle with whether I could give money for this guy's college fund. I called three people uh, and got three very different answers. Really? So, yeah. I remember Gate Talese told me, no way, you can't do that, right? <laughs> uh, Tracy Kidder, well, t- Steve James, who's a filmmaker who I worked on The Interrupters with, told uh-huh. me, you know, wake up if, you know, this is part of doing nonfiction, that you've got to compensate people. I think it's part, very much a part of the documentary world. And yeah, you know, it's a if different you, approach. And if you can't do it, you know, you need to find something else. I'm, I'm overstating a little bit. And then Tracy Kidder just said to me, you know, hey, you got to wake up in the morning, look yourself in the mirror, so you got to do what you feel you can live with, which I thought was probably the best advice. Right? <laughs> and so, but I think that's the, the main thing that's changed is that sort of question about, am I going to get compensated? And then what about on the, on the side of, you making a living and the business and right, like, have right. you, how, how have you sort of perceived those right. changes over yeah. time? I mean, the print business, as you well know, is, uh, it's, it's gotten a lot tighter and, and tougher. I mean, there used to be all these places, all these magazines that you could write for and moreover, they were really thick and full and, and opportunity. But having said that, I mean, there's, you know, the past, Five years or so, there's been a, for 10 years, there's been a real renaissance in, in radio. I love doing radio. I love doing stuff for This American Life. I mean, those people, I mean, Ira's an old friend, but he and Julie Snyder there, I mean, two of the smartest people I know. I, and, and also, it's one of the classiest outfits to work for. And I love, so I love doing radio. And, uh, and then there's been a real renaissance in, in documentary film. So, and I will say that for all the concern that the book business was going to shrivel up, that it's still, I think, still very much alive. Um, I mean, it's not that it's not struggling, but I still think that there's room there for really good stories. Mm -hmm. I 
have read somewhere that you yourself sort of uh, think of yourself as an outsider or have always sort of thought yeah. your, thought of yourself as an outsider. And I'm curious where that comes from. Um, in high school, college, I just always felt like, a, it's not that I didn't have friends. I, it's just, I always felt like an, an outsider that um, I wasn't, I wasn't a part of one particular group. Um, always worried that, you know, uh, I, I wasn't invited to something that I was missing out on something. I, I, I can't tell you why I'm so messed up that way. Uh, um, but so what does it do for you as a reporter, I guess? I think actually, it's interesting. I think I tell my students this, but I feel like one of the most undervalued characteristics of a good reporter is being self-aware. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't teach that, right? It's just, or it's really hard to teach. But I do think it's really, it's those reporters who are really kind of self-aware about all the, who have all the, or kind of really aware of all the the doubts they have about their own work, about their own abilities, that they're kind of clear-headed about sort of what their assumptions are, what their worldview is, that those make the best reporters in the end, um, and probably the most tortured as well. And so I'm kind of right in there. Uh, well, Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Alex Kotlowitz for hosting me in his home in Chicago. Thanks to Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, my co-hosts. To our editor this week, Janelle Pfeiffer. To our intern, Courtney Harrell. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.